I'm really excited to have Kobe and his family here today to talk to us, give his story, and um, to talk some about Israel. Um, what, a, what a neat thing after we've been praying for Israel for this month, and uh, it's really neat. And also, this is uh, Bruce's son-in-law, and he's been excited for him to come and visit too and be around, so uh, him and his wife, Heather. So um, how neat. So I'm going to let Bruce come up and introduce him. He knows more of the story. And Kobe, when you do, you can take the mic out. You can do whatever you're comfortable with. By way of introduction, Kobe is the eldest son of Israel and Panina Conforti. We have had the privilege of having him as a son-in-law. He's married to my daughter, Heather. And the couple now has five grandkids added to the family. They recently moved from Arizona and actually arrived around Thanksgiving in 2022. So thankful to have him in Ohio. Born and raised in Israel, and he lived in, they lived in Southern California and Arizona. And they arrived just in time to experience that cold front we had with winds and sub-zero temperatures. I asked Kobe how he liked the weather, and he said, I've never been so cold in all my life. <laughs> One of the missions of this church is to be a witness and an outreach within a 50-mile radius. And Kobe and the Conforti family certainly fits uh, that scenario. Um, Israel and Panina arrived uh, from Israel and were sent to help cultivate a new addition to the growings at Phil's Greenhouse. We have Phil here today, too, uh, on Knox School Road, and it's um, now Bonnie Plant Farm. During their stay, Phil would share Jesus out of the Old Testament prophecy, and miracles happened during that time. I've told Kobe and Panina and uh, Israel that there's power released when I share their testimony. Uh, with those that need prayer, and I'll feel the power of God on me, and they'll feel it as well many, many times. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy, and it certainly fits this testimony. So, to fill in, in the gaps in that testimony, Mary told me to keep it short, so I'll shorten it. I'll let Kobe take over um, to share the rest of the story Amen. and to share with us today. Amen. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, my name is Kobe Comforti, and um, I'm married to Heather, Bruce's daughter. I first time I came to this country was in 1991. It was right after the Gulf War. And I remember we were in Israel at the time when the Gulf War happened, and we were extremely frightened because if you remember at the time, we used to have the Scud missiles fired from Iraq into Israel, and they gave us the gas masks. And every night we would seal up our parents' bedroom because we were afraid that they would attack, attack us with chemical and biological weapons. And we used to put my little sister inside 
a little gas uh, protection chamber and all of us kids and my parents used to wear the masks and um, the alarms would go off and we would have two minutes to get into the safe room or into the bomb shelter. And after a few nights of this, we stopped being fearful <laughs> and we decided we wanted to adventure outside and actually see what's happening. And uh, I remember at nights when those Scud missiles would come, we would hear the sirens and immediately me and my dad would go outside to enjoy the show. And we would see the missiles fly over. We lived about an hour south of Tel Aviv in a coastal city. And we saw the American Patriot missiles firing up into the sky trying to shoot the Scud missiles down. Um, and 90% of the time they would miss and then both the Scud missiles and the Patriot missiles would end up falling. Um, but right after that happened, we moved to the United States. Um, my parents' names are Israel and Pnina, and my dad is a Bulgarian Jew. His parents immigrated to Israel from Bulgaria right after World War II. And for those that don't know, the Bulgarian Jews during World War II were saved by the Bulgarian Tsar, the Bulgarian king. Um, at the time, the Bulgarians had a deal with Nazi Germany, and the deal said that Bulgaria would allow Germany to use its land, and um, they wouldn't oppose the Nazis, and they signed a deal to deliver all of the Bulgarian Jews and all of the Jews that Bulgaria had when they conquered a bunch of territories outside of Bulgaria and delivering them, deliver them to Nazi Germany. And the Bulgarian Tsar agreed to it and sent the first batch of Jews. Those were Jews that were captured in territories that Bulgaria captured during World War II. And the 11,000 Jews were actually murdered in Nazi concentration camps. And the Tsar had a change of heart after he saw that. And he decided to break the agreement with Hitler and refuse to deliver the Bulgarian Jews that remained in Bulgaria, about 50, 60,000 Jews. Those Jews, however, did end up going to Nazi work forced labor camps. And my grandpa at the time, he was one of those Jews that was in a forced labor camp. And right after World War II ended, my grandparents on my dad's side started making their way to Israel. And they got to Israel in 1948 right as it declared their independence. And the very next day after the Declaration of Independence, seven Arab nations opened war against Israel. And my grandpa was taken straight off the boat and constricted into the newly formed, the one-day-old Israeli military. And the Jewish nation at the time was 600,000 people that lived there. Absolute majority of them were Holocaust survivors and refugees from Europe that have made their way since the end of the war, since 1945 till 1948. They made their way into Israel. And it was a weak nation, a one-day-old weak nation with a non-existent army. And all of a sudden, my grandpa, after being 
forced as a uh, laborer for Nazi Germany, he was now forced in to go into war and defend a country that didn't exist yesterday, that still didn't have a language, didn't have a culture, and the only thing that unified all the people that lived there was the fact that they were Jewish. And um, after the independence war ended, my grandparents on my dad's side settled in the city of Jaffa, which is right next to Tel Aviv. It's a coastal city. I'm sure you heard of it. It's mentioned in the Bible. My mom's parents, though, they immigrated from Yemen, and they were Yemenite Jews. And the thing that's unique about the Yemenite Jews is, unlike the rest of the Jewish diaspora around the world, which the majority of them had to leave Israel after the Roman occupation of Israel 2,000 years ago. Um, and I'm sure you know the, Roman, the Jews, when the Romans occupied Israel, they rebelled, rebelled against the Romans. And the Romans came back into Israel after they were kicked out for a short time, and they completely decimated the country. A third of the Jews died in that reconquering of Israel by the Romans. A third were taken as slaves by the Romans, and a third simply scattered all over the earth. And they left Israel as a desolate place. We have testimonies from people that visited Israel over those 2,000 years saying that Israel is in ruin. The cities are abandoned. The nation is desolate. There's no fields to be worked. And my... Uh, the Bulgarian Jews on my dad's side got to Bul Bulgaria in a few different ways, but the majority of the ways that they ended up in Bulgaria and in the whole territory of the European Balks is after the Romans took them as slaves or they scattered them, they made their way to Italy and then to Spain, and then after the Spanish and the Italian Inquisitions, they continued to flee and they made their way to Bulgaria and Turkey and Russia. And those Bulgarian Jews lived there for 2,000 years. Back to the Yemenite Jews, the unique thing about the Yemenite Jews is that the Yemenite Jews actually have been away from Israel for 2,600 years. They left Israel after the first destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. Um, and when I think about an ancient people, because the Jewish people are considered one of the ancient people, there aren't too many examples of an ancient people being away from their homeland for 2,000 or 2,600 years that managed to keep their tradition and their culture and their language and their faith in God. And it is a miracle by any count that an ancient people has maintained that. In 1950s, my mom's parents, they made Aliyah into Israel. They came to Israel. And at the time, the Jewish, the Israeli government <clears throat> decided that every time a people group made it into Israel from one of the countries that the diaspora lived in. 
either in Africa or Northern Africa or in the Middle East or in Asia or in Europe, instead of scattering them throughout Israel, they were going to concentrate them and let them live as a community in either newly formed cities and towns in Israel or in newly formed neighborhoods that are added to cities as the masses of immigration continuously come in. And so when the immigration from Yemen happened, the Israeli government figured that they should be farmers. And my grandparents never held a farming tool in their life, but they were given some acreage and they were told you are now farmers. Um, the good thing is that the Israeli government also provided the financial assistance and the land and the training and my mom's parents, they settled them in a little, very, very small town named Tzlafon, which is on the western slopes of the hills of Jerusalem. And it is an extremely beautiful place, if you've uh, ever been there. And um, that decision to put all these different Jewish communities together and not scatter them actually ended up being right because those communities held on together. Their neighbors were people that they knew, that spoke their language, that had the same traditions as them, and they were able to grow as a community into the newly formed culture of this newly formed country called Israel, which became a huge melting pot. And with immigration waves that the Israeli government decided to not allow them to come in as a community and settle them in one place together where they scattered them in a bunch of different cities, we saw that those communities ended up not being able to, to hold on during that acclimation phase. And they, after a few years, they all ended up going back to the countries that they came from. And so looking back at it, that was, that was the right decision. But Israel became this huge melting pot of dozens and dozens of different cultures and languages and skin colors. My dad is European, tall, white, green eyes. My mom is Yemenite, short, curly hair, dark skin. And the entire country found themselves having to figure out how to work together. And the core of this melting pot came together when the government decided that conscription is mandatory and everybody has to join the army, women and men at the age of 18 after they're done with high school. And in the army, all of a sudden, and in school, all these different Jewish ethnicities realize that they have to meet each other and work together. And that's where really Israel started to take form. And my parents, that's where they met in the military. Just like a lot of Israeli couples and families, the parents meet in the military. And my mom came from an extremely traditional home, just like a lot of Yemenites were. They were religious and they went to the synagogue every Saturday and they wore the head covering and the woman dressed modestly and before meals, they used to say their prayers. 
And I don't know if you've ever seen Yemeni Jews, but they have the little curls on the side. Um, my dad's side, on the other hand, came from an extremely secular family, which a lot of the a lot of the Bulgarian Jews were extremely secular. And if you think about it, how did all these Jews that were secular for hundreds and hundreds of years still maintain their culture and religion and ethnicity? And the answer is, it's a miracle. That's the only way they could. Uh, yeah, secular is when they are, they either don't believe that God exists or they believe that there is a God, but they don't necessarily believe that God has that, that impact on our lives or is that influential. Um, and I remember as a kid, during the Passover dinners, uh, on the Bulgarian side, I couldn't, uh, they were extremely different than the Passover dinners on the Yemenite side because on the Bulgarian side, when you go to a Passover dinner, my grandpa used to put a record on with the Passover songs and the Passover story, put the record, and then everybody can start eating. Dig in. And on the Yemenite side, you better show up to dinner already full because the, by the time you get to start eating dinner, you'll be hungry again because you read the entire story of Exodus. And you go over um, all the entire story of um, of the Passover, and you sing all the songs, and you say all the prayers, and it is, it is a sight to see, um, especially since my mom's family was extremely big. She had three brothers and seven sisters, so ten siblings, and each one of them also multiplied, so going over to my grandparents' house for Passover was, it was amazing. There would be 50 to 100 people there, and those, that realization that something is happening, something that's beyond just another nation forming after World War II. Like we had so many dozens of nations getting their independence and forming. And this was something that was unique. Now the story of Ezekiel 36, where the prophecy of God bringing the people of Israel back together is truly amazing. If you think about it, we all live in a time where we see before us a prophecy taking place, a prophecy coming true, and it's, it's still taking place because the prophecy is not done yet. And there's one particular verse that a lot of people know, and it says in Ezekiel 36, verse 24, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all of the countries, and bring you back into your own land. And seeing this happen is a privilege, I think, for all of us. And we sometimes forget why God is doing it, but he actually tells us exactly why he's doing it. Just the verse before, which a lot of people skip. Um, and he says, uh, verse 22, Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, 
where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declared the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. And then he says again, for I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all of the countries and bring you back into your own land. But that is not the only thing that the prophecies talk about when it comes to giving glory to God. Matthew 23, verse 37 it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're seeing this. It is happening right now. The first part of the prophecy where he brings the people of Israel back together to their homeland and their cities are no longer abandoned and their fields are no longer abandoned and the country is no longer desolate. It is happening right now. Heather and I and the kids were there just a couple of months ago or a month ago, and we were at awe at the momentum of construction in the country. There are more construction cranes than trees. It is anywhere you look, in any direction, the cities are being built, new cities are being built, existing cities are being expanded, and the entire country, it feels like there is such a growth momentum. It really feels like it's flourishing, like it's coming alive right before our eyes. And we were there in the spring, which obviously made everything look even more beautiful because the entire country was flourishing. Everywhere we looked, the flowers and the trees and... It was such a sight to see. But then we have Jesus say that it's not done yet because Ezekiel 36 also talks about the Jewish people having a heart of stone and of God wanting to give us a beating heart. And I, and that's when the story starts, the story of my family's salvation because the first thing my mom told me, because I, I called her and I asked her and I texted her and I was like, I remember some of our salvation story, but not all of it because I was 11 years old and I told her, I want you to tell me the story from your perspective. And so what I'm going to share with you today is my mom's story of how she came to the Lord and with her, our entire family. And she told me, I had no idea God was planning a new life for me. And she talked about the joy that she found and the fulfillment that she found once she became a Christian. And I immediately thought 
when I saw her text, which opened with that, I thought about God's promise in verse 26, still in Ezekiel 36, saying, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And I immediately thought about that because I felt like my mom, for the first time, felt that she was spiritually alive. My mom told me, and I'm going to read to you exactly what she says because it's just so powerful that if I say it from my perspective, telling it from her perspective, it's just not going to be the same. So I'm going to read to you what she said. And she said, I worked in a greenhouse in Israel and I was in charge of cultivating ferns, which were then sold to Europe and to the United States. Phil Norcom, which is here with us, the owner of Phil's greenhouse, went into partnership with the company I worked for and I was asked to temporarily move to the United States and help Phil establish a production line of cultivating ferns. I arrived in the US one week before Thanksgiving in 1991 and three weeks before my husband, Israel, and our three kids and was hosted at Phil's guest house where I met his family. I noticed that Phil held in his house prayer and worship meetings, which caused me great curiosity, as I felt that God belonged to the Jews, and to the Jews alone, and no one can just use our God. I was in shock to see that they pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They loved him. They prayed to him, excited about him, cry with joy, thank him at every opportunity, and praise him without ever going to the synagogue. All this caused me confusion and anger, and I was surprised to see that these Gentiles, Gentiles are people that are not Jewish, know the Old Testament. What God promises and where they are and where those promises are in the scriptures. And when, when I read that, I immediately thought of Romans 11, verses 13 through 15, that says, I'm talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And I thought, man, for 2,000 years, the Christian church in all its variations, have tried to stir this very jealousy and has failed miserably. Their failure, 
caused the Christian church to persecute Jews and almost eliminate them from existence. For 2,000 years, the Roman Catholic Church has been persecuting Jews. All the way through the Spanish Inquisitions, then the Italian Inquisitions, and afterwards with the Russian pogroms for 300 years, and after that with the almost destruction of Judaism in Europe by Nazi Germany. And they've, the Christian church has never been able to meet the very goal that God set for them. And that was to cause envy so the Jewish people would come back to him. My mom continued, and me, who grew up in a religious house with Jewish Yemenite parents, Did not. I did not. She says, I did not know the scriptures. And I did not know the promises and the prophecies. And I did not have this relationship with God. My parents were God-fearing, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, say their blessings before meals, don't drive on the Sabbath, keep all the commandments in a fanatical way, eat kosher, dress conservatively, wear head coverings as a symbol of their faith in God. The Judaism today is so fanatical about keeping the 613 commandments in the Bible that they added multitude of commandments on top of them just trying to keep them. And one of them is, you shall not drink you shall not eat a calf in its mother's milk. That's one of the commandments. And obviously that commandment is there just to stay away from cruelty to animals. But the Jews went so far, they were so afraid of breaking that commandment that they said, we will not eat meat and dairy products together at all, just so there won't be a slight chance of a calf being eaten with its mother's milk. And then they took it further. The Jews separate between the silverware and the dishes that they use for meals with meat, and they separate the dishes and silverware that they use for meals with dairy, just so when those get washed, that they won't get washed together, and perhaps fragments of dairy or meat touch each other. And so my mom came from a family that was extremely religious, and I would even say zealot from our perspective, because you have to be a zealot to take it to those lengths. And obviously each law had its own multiple laws that would prevent you from ever getting to the point where you would break that original law. I went to a religious school where boys were separated from girls, boys in the front and girls in the back, we learned the Torah, the prophets, the commandments, all this, and I realized that I don't know my own God. My whole life, I've learned that God judges us from above and is waiting to document all of our transgressions. I've learned to be scared of this God. And here in America, 
these Gentiles were treating God as their friend, talking to him as if he was their neighbor, asking him for help whenever they needed it, and never forgot to thank him. These Americans dressed freely in shorts, didn't wear a head covering, drove on the Sabbath, barbecue on the Sabbath, and they ate seafood and pork. <laughs> the ultimate, the ultimate sin for Judaism. <laughs> One Thanksgiving night, everyone at Phil's house sang, Shine, Jesus, Shine. And I stood hypnotized by the song and started crying. I didn't even know why I was crying. Thelma and Phil and Julia McCune were glad and said, the Holy Spirit is working in me, but I just replied that I'm crying because I miss my husband and kids. Now I'm going to grab a tissue because I'm starting to cry. <laughs> On Sunday, I joined the Norcoms in church for the first time and saw something I have never seen before. Before Whole families sitting together without separation, because up until now, the only experience she had was going to synagogues where the men were separated from women. On stage, the band was worshiping, and the crowd was gladly singing along, clapping, and was generally happy. And I couldn't help but think of my youth in Israel, going to the synagogue and not experiencing this excitement or emotion while worshiping God. This caused me to be even more curious but I quickly realized that I must stop this as even thinking about Jesus is a sin. In Israel, thinking, talking, or reading about Jesus was considered a sin. We learned that Jesus was God's enemy and us Jews had no business being curious about this guy. And it's true because when we were there in Israel a month ago, I spoke to my brother-in-law about Christ, and he refused to have a conversation about him. And when I told him, open the scriptures, read. It's right there. Open the New Testament. Just see what Jesus has to say. And he refused. He said, absolutely not. It would be the worst betrayal of my people if I did so. And that fear of being exposed to Jesus has been solidified over 2,000 years of persecution. And that's why it exists there. Because when Jews see the cross, in their eyes, it's a symbol of persecution. When we see the cross, it's a symbol of forgiveness. And it's a symbol of acceptance by God. And that is my mom's perspective every time Jesus is mentioned. After three weeks of living with the Norcoms, my husband Israel and my three kids finally joined me. I was extremely excited. I could not believe my accomplishment in life. Me, Pnina, who grew up in a tiny immigrant town in the hills of Jerusalem without a high school diploma, a degree, or a future, now live in America, have a good job, a family, in a profession, today I know that was prideful. We lived the dream, and I felt like we were in a Hollywood movie. 
Every day we went shopping, we went to McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> we lived in a house with a big yard, had two cars, wall-to-wall -wall carpets, and a dishwasher. <laughs> On top of it, everyone we met was excited to learn that we were Jews from Israel. I felt like a Jewish star. What more could I ask for? <laughs> Our two families, Phil's family, our two families got along very well. Israel became friends with Phil and Kobe with the Norcom and the McCune kids. The Norcoms invited Kobe to go to Bible camp, and I agreed. When Kobe returned, he came to me, and that's me, I'm Kobe. He came to me excited and said, I have accepted Jesus into my heart. I was horrified and immediately told them, <laughs> I remember this, and I immediately told them, Kobe, no. Jesus is Yeshu. This Yeshu is just for the Gentiles and not for the Jews. We are forbidden. And she wrote, I will never forget how I immediately saw him and the joy and the light that he had churn off in his eyes. But I moved on as I know that us Jews are forbidden from ever talking about Jesus. And by the way, in Israel, they do not call Jesus Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name. They call him Yeshu, which is actually an acronym for Imach Shimo which means, will his name be forgotten and erased? So they, they are so fearful of having Jesus a part of their life that they even refuse to refer to him by his name. After work, Phil used to come over often with his Bible and have Bible studies with us about the prophecies. At one point, Israel said, just wait. My whole life, I never believed in God, and you have convinced me that there is a God. And my dad came from a completely secular family. And now... You're trying to make me believe in Jesus? No way. It's enough that I now believe in God. Yeah. Phil continued to visit us for a year, and we slowly came to the realization that all the prophecies really do point at Jesus, and that it is only through him that our sins can be forgiven. The heart understood, and the mind refused to accept. How can I accept this? This is forbidden. Jesus is not for the Jews. It's a sin to even consider it. Phil took us to a healing and prayer meeting, and we've never seen anything like this. People going up front to receive prayer and healing and falling on their backs. We got emotional but still held strong. When the preacher asked if anyone wants to accept Christ into their hearts, Israel and I said, no, we are Jews. But that night, both of us started having our doubts. In another opportunity, Julie McCune invited me to go see a show, Dancers from Jerusalem. I immediately said yet, yes, these dancers were dancing for Jesus, worship Jesus, dance with a Jewish prayer, the, the talit, the Jewish prayer garment. I was immediately horrified and walked out. Then I came back in, then walked out again, then in again, and my soul was in turmoil. 
I saw Michael Moran dancing ballet with the head covering and the talit for Jesus. And she writes, the horror. I walked outside and I saw a table with merchandise for sale, worship cassettes and other Jewish ornaments. And I was furious. How can they sell these Jewish symbols? Those are for Jews. I saw a woman at the table and I said, I said to her, aren't you ashamed of yourself performing like this and praying to Jesus? She didn't know that this woman was Orit, Michael's wife, the dancer. And she answered me in a straightforward way, no, I'm not. We pray to Jesus, son of David, that is mentioned in the Torah, and she started quoting Bible verses about the Messiah, who he is, his genealogy, and the more she spoke, the smaller I felt, like a balloon losing its air. We received an invite to go visit Orit and Michael Moran in Maryland, and we went with Phil and his family. The Morans hosted us and saw them, and we saw them pray to God in Jesus' name before the meal. And I thought, not again. Can't we just get to God without Jesus getting in the way? We sat with Michael and Orit for hours that night, and they patiently answered all of our questions about Jesus and showed us verses from the Old Testament. They were also Israeli, and we felt a connection. That Saturday, they took us to their church, and I felt this is where I'm supposed to be. I felt glad. I sang, and I could not stop crying. I understood there that Jesus is the Messiah, but I kept it to myself, afraid to reveal it to anyone. Meanwhile, God worked on Israel's hearts as well, but Israel did not know that I was already one level ahead of him. All of a sudden, Israel and I started fighting constantly. One day, Israel said to me, let's escape this place before they turn us into Christians. <laughs> we had fights and didn't speak for a while. We were invited to meet with a Messianic Jewish family in Canton, and I remember thinking that I don't want to get there while not talking to Israel. I came to Phil and I told him that Israel and I decided to get a divorce. And Phil said, divorce? No way. Phil said, the devil is trying to ruin what God put together and immediately called into his office, Tom McCune and another person, and everyone started to pray that God would protect my family. Of course, my tears that day could have filled Lake Erie. Afterwards, I called Orit and explained what was happening with me in Israel, and she also prayed for me. I remember crying and praying in the car after days of not talking to Israel, saying, God, if Jesus is really our Messiah and, is not, and it's not a sin to believe in him, please let there be peace in our house. I got home that night and Israel was acting as if no fight has ever happened. My, is that just a man thing to do or is that the, the Holy Spirit working? <laughs> My joy, knew, my joy knew no ends and felt like I just received confirmation that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. Now I just have to wait for God to show me to show this to my husband. We had many more meetings, Bible studies, and still Israel was unmoved. Phil invited us to another prayer and healing meeting, 
And once again, at the end of it, the audience was asked to come forward and accept Jesus. People went up, but Israel and I were firm. We stayed put. The preacher said, Is there a family here that wants Jesus, but they are scared? And Israel heard the words, Israel bo, which in English means, Israel come. And, Phil turned, and Israel turned to Phil and said, Did the preacher just call my name? And Phil and I both told Israel that the preacher did not call his name. And again, Israel heard someone call, Israel bo, Israel come. And Israel said to Phil, you didn't give anyone my name, right? <laughs> Israel said that he heard Israel come as if someone was speaking Hebrew to him. And of course, that was the Holy Spirit and the entire family stood up at once and we all raised our hand to accept Jesus into our heart. And I remember that very vividly. And we became Christians, and just a few months later, we went back to Israel after living in Ohio for about a year and a half. And we could sit here for another hour or two talking about everything that has happened with my family since then. But as a result of us becoming Christians, we had friends and family and their kids come to Christ. And we were an active part of the Messianic community in Israel. And I thought about our salvation story and I realized it's not only our story, it's also Phil's story. And I thought about Luke chapter eight and it says, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and he was scattering the seed. Some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on the rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plant. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded crop a hundred times more than was sown. And I realized that this is as much a Phil story as our family story because Phil was able to accomplish something that Christians have not been able to accomplish for 2,000 years. And I'm talk generalizing here about the Christian churches and all its different forms in Europe. He was able to invoke that envy that God wanted his people to experience so badly. And I thought about it. How, what did Phil do? Thankfully, there were no inquisitions in the, at Phil's greenhouse. And what did Phil do that was different than what everybody else has done? And I realized that when Jesus explains what the parable is about, 
Jesus says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. And when my parents rejected Phil, Phil could have very easily said, okay, I guess this is the seed that fell along the path because clearly they rejected him and walked away. But Phil didn't do that. What Phil did was continued praying, he continued interceding for the family, and he continued telling the truth. And then Jesus says, those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but the time of testing, they fall away. And when my mom was facing divorce, Phil could have easily said, no, no, no. Let's stop what we're doing because I don't want to have your family destroyed and have that on my conscience. But Phil didn't do that. When my mom came to him, when she didn't have a, the roots of a strong faith, and the testing came, Phil stayed there and prayed and interceded and continued telling the truth. And then Jesus says, the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, the riches and the pleasures, and they do not mature. And Phil, for the last 30 years, have continued to be our friend and continued to pray for us and intercede for us and never gave up hope. And I realized that the difference between the historic church and all its variations and Phil is that Phil loved and he threw himself into telling my family about God even though all these different difficulties came along and my parents struggled with loss heartache success and Phil was still there throughout the whole time. And I realize today that that is a true accomplishment for a believer. And I, I see it every day in Bruce. I see him giving away his time, his resources, his money, just to be able to continue to tell others about Christ. Um, the story of my family is still continuing with four children for my parents and 14 grandchildren. And they are known in the community in Israel that they are Christians. And sometimes they suffer for it. But there's a change in Israel that's happening right now. When I was in the military in Israel, I got reprimanded by my officers for bringing my New Testament to the base. 
And in our last visit, we visited some of our Christian friends, and one of their sons is in the Israeli Air Force. And the Israeli Air Force commander, every time there is a lull in activity, he asks him to come and tell the soldiers about his faith in Christ. And we are slowly, slowly but surely, we're seeing a prophecy come to life before us. And we pray that it continues. That's it. Thank you. Phil, also, we want to just acknowledge what you did. I would hear from a distance all of that, but it's really huge. So thank you. And we just honor you today. Yes. Yeah. When, we, when this, came, this call to this fast came up, of course, we've always uh, recognized um, Israel as much as we can. But... Um, I, I just was personally challenged because it wasn't on my heart to pr like there wasn't a burden to pray, so that was a confession, not anything I was proud of. And uh, I had to reconcile that. I began to, I just had to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I'm struggling to do what I should, so I just presented myself. You know, you can do that when you're not doing well. You can still go to God, and uh, He'll make a way for you. And um, it's uh, one of the things that I used through this time was the 21 prayers that Mike Bickle had come up with um, that, were, that are all based on Scripture. I downloaded them. I gave out a few here. And it was amazing. These are all Scriptures I know, and you, many of you do as well. But I had said this to you all when we began on that first day on the 7th. How many of you have a firstborn? that no matter what state of life that firstborn is, they're always your firstborn. You always love them, even if they stray far away from your values and values and your cultures. And Israel truly is God's firstborn. He always has that affection, no matter what they've done. And for us to, uh, to take that on as adopted grafted in it's not like we're adopted we don't have rights and it's funny how many christians have this attitude like what's so special about the jewish people and you're missing the point when you have that attitude and to realize who do you think you are that you got in that you deserved anything like we're truly only in by grace and only by this kindness of a good god and we don't understand that our father in heaven is able to love the adopted as much as the firstborn. He's, he's a good parent. Every once in a while, you'll see a parent uh, in the flesh, a couple in the flesh that have adopted and have their own children. And the, if they're good, if they're pure in heart, they love that adopted child as much as the firstborn. And God is that way. And a lot of the scriptures we quote for ourselves, especially Old Testament scriptures, they weren't written to us. Now, it's a privilege to 
tap into those things like no weapon formed against you will prosper. How many times have you quoted that? That was specifically to them about their enemies, to comfort them. There's no weapon that's formed against you that will prosper. And so it's just, it was amazing for me to revisit all of these scriptures, reading them every morning um, for, for an hour, reading and praying, seeing all the things. Like, and you realize God's not done with this. This isn't fulfilled, and there's so much more, and it, it truly began to change my heart. And so it was so neat that Kobe could come and share a story. Excellent, excellent, good, great job. And uh, I can't, yeah, again, Phil and Tina, like I've heard their names all of my married life because Phyllis and her family were, uh, Phyllis and her mother were connected to Phil's greenhouse and they were, you know, Margie were work there and whatever. So you just would hear the stories, hear the names like I knew you all. And uh, so I remembered this. I don't know that I ever got to meet your mom but wow, I heard, I, you know, I heard her name all the time. So um, that's neat. And then to hear the story, Phil, what you did was uh, really good. Great testimony, great example, and uh, convicting example to, to all of us. Yeah. And it's so true. If the church would just change their attitude and realize who you are, who Israel is, is how much God loves them. And when you pray for them, you bless him. Now, I'm all in. If there's something that I can do that just puts a smile on God's heart and to pray the promises, they're there. Just get a, get a list and start reading through those scriptures, reading through those things, seeing God's heart, seeing it's like stuff that hasn't been fulfilled yet. He wants to put his shine his glory on Jerusalem, like all of this stuff, like it's not done and calls them back. You realize just like uh, Kobe's testimony, they were they're all over the world. How big of a deal is for them to be drawn back, the remnant, the reference to the remnant being called back and drawn back. So God's not done. So thank you again so much. What a powerful testimony. And uh, so let's, let's close in prayer. Father, I just ask your blessing. Kobe on his family, on Phil, on, on uh, uh, Bruce and Mary and, and all that they've done to connect us to this. And Father, most of all, we pray for your sons and daughters, your lost sheep, that we can be a part of the testimony and the attraction, the fragrance, you being in us instead of the repulsive part of what the church had historically become. And we're, we're, so, uh, we're just ashamed of that. Like, we repent for that, for what the church did and the, the, the position they, they took. Inconceivable, actually, when they had their Bibles in front of them. But we do foolish things when we don't keep you as Lord and Savior in our lives and we don't allow your spirit to interpret the scriptures for us. And so we ask for your blessing on this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.